guy. Ever wonder what it's like to face a 350-pound lineman who wants to smash you into the ground? I know what that feels like. Scott Mitchell here, and I want to tell you about my podcast, Helmets Off, where I talk about the pressures of being an NFL quarterback and some of the other pressures pro athletes face when the helmet is off. It's a podcast, and you can get it free on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and at kslsports.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. Today on the show, we've got Scott Hartley. You're not going to change the world overnight, uh, especially in you know large organizations, uh, large bureaucracies. But I do think that um, you know you you have sort of uh, internal internal buy-in. So I think finding people that may be part of the the old guard, uh, you know, and and sort of communicating to them how to make their life easier. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper, but uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, Probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, So totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. Scott, thanks for making time. Thanks a lot, Jess. So to begin with, let's start about your uh, your book here because it's not the average premise of most most books in the business world today. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm I'm excited to be here. And uh, yeah, so the premise of my book, um, F- the fuzzy and the techie, why the liberal arts will rule the digital world. Um, is sort of contrarian in some ways, but it really spoke to both my own personal story, uh, being a political science major, working in Silicon Valley, sort of uh, coming up you know, a bit through the ranks at Google, uh, spending some time at Facebook, and then spending some time on Sand Hill Road in a venture capital firm, um, where I, my job was to evaluate different tech startups and meet with entrepreneurs and founders kind of day in and day out. And uh, just this observation that I had that some of the most interesting companies that we were seeing didn't really fit in with the narrative that was being sort of propagated about Silicon Valley, that it was this bastion of you know only tech entrepreneurs and only people who were deeply versed in science, technology, engineering, and math, you know, people that all knew how to code. Everyone was an engineer. And th- those weren't necessarily um, the truths that I saw sort of day in and day out both in my own personal you know, journey and then also in, in the venture capital world. 
Um, you know, and Mark Andreessen, who founded Netscape, and who he's a big venture capitalist uh, across the street on, on Sand Hill, you know, he had made statements like um, people with soft skills were going to work in shoe stores and that software was eating the world. And I, I wanted to take a step back and sort of change the narrative a bit about uh, fear about technology and, and, and make it more about hope, because what I was seeing was that people with all these different backgrounds coming from all these different walks of life um, were able to partner with technologists, were able to sort of get the bare bones of uh, an MVP or minimum viable product up, up and running. Um, they were able to build teams and cohere people around their ideas. And, and really, it was more about the sort of comparative advantage of, of having deep context in a problem and then you know, using tech uh, to, to sort of provide scale. But technology was more the commodity than it was in many times um, you know, the, the sort of secret sauce. And so, you know, that was sort of the impetus for writing the book was just this um, false narrative that I felt was being propagated about Silicon Valley. And I wanted to sort of bring the pendulum back to center on saying, hey, you know, even if you're not a science, technology, engineering and math major, even if you haven't been coding since you were 13, um, you can definitely participate in Silicon Valley. You can definitely be a tech founder. You can sort of be part of the digital revolution. And um, that was just true to my own you know, experience and then my own sort of observation from VC. Yeah, well, when you think about, um, for instance, you know, you went to Stanford, correct? That's right. Yeah. You know, um, I uh, I was lucky enough to take a, cl a class there, one of these executive ed classes that included um, some time at the D school. You know, the the IDEO goes got started over there at the design school, right? Um, and you think about anybody who's talking about innovation these days, um, whether it's where the book where good ideas come from whether it's steal like an artist or the video series everything is a remix right it really um it really doesn't lead us to think that uh people coming down the exact same path are likely to create great new things why do you think that sometimes a narrative like this isn't as obvious to people though you know it's interesting um the this sort of paradigm of fuzzy and techie uh, comes from Stanford. So you're, you're probably familiar with the terms that if you're not, um, generally, you know, fuzzies are on campus for people who studied arts, humanities, or social sciences, and techies, you know, people sort of from the engineering or computer sciences. And uh, really, this goes back to, you know, this sort of false dichotomy um, that C.P. Snow, who was, uh, he was a, a novelist and a physicist, he gave this great lecture at Cambridge University in 1959. Um, and he basically lamented this chasm between um, people that studied the humanities and people that studied the sciences and said, you know, wait a minute, we need people to really come together. We need people to read Shakespeare and also understand the basic building blocks of physics. Um, and I think similarly today, you know, we need people to both be versed in philosophy and ethics and literature, um, but also, you know, be familiar with data and, and basics of, of coding and sort of knowing that this is another foreign language that that people should start upskilling in, uh, just like they might learn Chinese uh, or Spanish. And so, um, you know, it's interesting that it, sort of at this confluence of these two sides, I think none of us are, you know, completely fuzzy or completely techie. Um, but I think in this blending of the two sides, uh, this is where a lot of innovation happens. And I think that, you know, exactly what you said, that the D school and, and some of these um, interdisciplinary programs do a really good job of trying to blend um, these two competencies. But, uh, you know, the, the terms are, they're, they're kind of loose, uh, jocular terms in some ways, because you look at fuzzy majors like, uh, like what I studied, you know, political science, 
and people might uh, denigrate it as being, oh, this is a soft skill. You know, this is something that is not as rigorous as uh, an engineering degree. Yet, you know, if you take a, a political science or international relations course, you're dealing with game theory. You're dealing dealing with probabilities and statistics. Uh, you know, a, a lot as well. Um, so, you know, the sort of false narrative about fuzzy degrees being worthless, and the, you know, equally false narrative about techie degrees being you know, only uh, rigorous and technical. Uh, many, many of them, you know, mechanical engineering at Stanford, for example, you're probably taking a design thinking class. You're probably taking courses in effectively sociology or ethnography or anthropology to think about user experience research and how you interview people and how you design studies and surveys. Um, you know, those are all fuzzy soft skills as well. So it's, it's, you know, not saying that one side is good and one side is bad, but it's about how we blend these two together. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in your opinion. Um, how soon did you know that you were going to be interested in applying those skills to the tech world, for instance? So I found that, you know, I, I had the fortune of, of sort of growing up in Silicon Valley and being participatory from a pretty early age, you know, even my high school jobs, in addition to, you know, being a barista and and, and working at soccer camps also included, you know, being an HTML editor at a failed uh, tech startup in the in the mid to late 90s. And so, you know, I had the fortune of sort of being in the eye of the storm when a lot of this stuff was was happening. Um, but for me, you know, when I got to Google, which was my first real job out of out of Stanford, um, people kind of questioned me. They said, "Well, you study political science. What are you possibly doing at Google?" You know, my extended family in, in Idaho and Colorado and Pennsylvania and places in between, they they couldn't quite figure out what I did at Google. And um, I realized, you know, pretty quickly that I had a different set of skills than some people, but um, I had the ability to sort of make arguments and, and write effectively. Um, so I started putting together uh, white papers. I, I made it my sort of core mission to sort of identify problems in the product and then put together product requirement documents, um, which pretty quickly sort of put me on this fast track to being more uh, to being closer to the product side of the organization. So um, I went to India for a year and launched a couple teams that were focused on solving some of these problems. So pretty quickly, you know, I, I figured out that I had a skill set of, of storytelling and the ability to kind of put my finger on what was missing in the product. And, you know, that gave me a lot of opportunities that I think if I had just sort of gone through the motions of uh, being mildly technical, but not really being passionate about those things, um, I wouldn't have, you know, had nearly the the same number of opportunities. You know, um, I recently got to go on my first tour of the Google campus and uh, it was interesting to go kind of hang out. Like I didn't have real meetings. It was mostly hanging out, you know, uh, but also learning about the ways things get mixed and matched there. Like the, I think it's like Thursday afternoon <laughs> meeting with the CEO. Is, am I getting that right? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, so I, I make the joke that when I was at Google so long ago that uh, TGI Friday was actually on Friday because they moved it to Thursday because the company became so global that they had to ho host it on Thursday because it's already Friday in Australia and Japan, you know. And so uh, by having it on Friday afternoon in Mountain View, it sort of precluded a lot of, uh, you know, the global offices from being able to participate in this uh, in this sort of open dialogue with, with the CEO and, you know, back with uh, Larry and Sergey. And uh, so it's it's sort of my my own little little joke, but uh, something that something that has changed <laughs> over the years. Sure, um, but just this concept of, I mean, 
uh, our consulting firm, Mylan Advisors, we we talk to a number of our other clients who maybe they feel like um, they get you know they get some employment survey back, you know, employee engagement survey or something of people not feeling communicated with. And we talk about, you know, we ask them, well, you know, how often are you communicating with them? And it's like, we had, we've had an all hands meeting every year for the last five years, you know, and it's like, oh, well, let's talk about benchmarks with some other organizations out there. Right. And you hear about Google having it weekly. Um, but I guess what I was interested in is the, the idea that people could challenge in that meeting, that it's not just, you know, this, uh, you know, communist, the only message that will come out is the one that the dictator has approved to come out. Um, when you think about people, whether it's in universities or whether it's in corporate America, the idea of um, maybe widening the aperture of who, mm-hmm. who might add to the conversation at our organization, what would be your argument that way of, of thinking about, you know, more than just the kids who went on the STEM track? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and I think it's, it is true to the sort of ethos of, of Google. And I think a lot of great companies, you know, that are um, sort of steeped in, in fairly open dialogues. Uh, I don't know that many are quite as open where you can stand and, you know, pick up the mic and ask a question directly to the CEO in front of the entire company. Um, but it's uh, it's it's pretty profound. But I think you know on even team composition within product organizations, for example, um, you know we see uh, the attention economy and some of the decisions that are being baked into mobile products, for example, where if you've got a billion users, um, the implications of those products start touching on you know sociology and and and, and a number of other uh, questions about how we want to govern society, how we want to influence people. Um, you know, is that right? Is, is that within the prerogative or purview of what a company should be able to do and, and to what extent without regulation? And, you know, those are big questions. Um, and so as we think through, you know, who's on those teams, um, it was fascinating. I had a conversation with um, a woman who was recently on the cover of uh, MIT Tech Review. Her name is Tracy Chow, and she was, you know, one of the um, top young innovators. Um, but Tracy, She's a software engineer, and she had spent, uh, you know, her early career at Quora and then at Pinterest, uh, two tech companies, mm-hmm. and she was basically running um, different parts of, of the product. And when she was at Quora, <clears throat> one of the, you know, early uh, conversations that she had with her product team was, um, you know, are users inherently good? Or are users inherently bad? And the questions, you know, that they were asking were broadly philosophical. They had to really determine if they should have a moderation queue, if they thought users were going to violate terms of service, or should they let them openly, pub, you know, publicly say whatever they wanted on, on Quora. And they had this big philosophical debate, and they realized that, you know, because everyone had studied uh, so rigorously uh, computer science and, and some of these technical skills, um, they actually didn't have a lot of context or fallback on how they should be thinking through these problems that were broadly philosophical. And so she actually felt like she wished, you know, going back to her undergraduate days, that she had taken more diverse um, courses and, you know, taken some uh, courses in psychology, some courses in philosophy, some courses in ethics. And so, you know, I think, um, one, you know, individually, we can each try to more holistically um, build our sort of personas where we have you know, skills in both soft and hard skills, um, thinking through how can I be a little fuzzy and a little techie, um, you know, and I think within companies too, uh, when we're hiring for, you know, a data science team, 
not everyone on the team has to have data science all over their resumes. You know, maybe 80% of people do, but you know, 20% of people should be uh, just from completely orthogonal, different mindsets, you know, majors, backgrounds, passions, um, so that we have that diversity of thought sort of pulling on the conversation a little bit um, to sort of broaden the aperture, as you said. Well, I'm interested. Um, I'm interested in how you saw this show up. Uh, weren't you a presidential innovation fellow at the White House? Is that right? Yeah. So I spent about eight months um, in D.C. Uh, I was on the second sort of tour of, of innovation fellows. And basically, for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, Todd Park, who is the, the chief technology officer, the second chief technology officer for President Obama, um, he instituted this program where, kind of like the White House Fellows, uh, it was to bring people from technology backgrounds into Washington to sort of import techies, if you will. Um, and, uh, and basically, you know, through the process, most people were from product or engineering backgrounds, and then a couple of us were from more venture uh, soft skill backgrounds. Um, but, but effectively, it was to try to, you know, bring a technology perspective into a very, you know, fuzzy environment like Washington where you know, most people are lawyers or history majors or, or whatnot and maybe aren't quite as adept with uh, what's been happening in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, this idea of bringing diversity of thought, um, well, for starters, what, what do you do as a pres presidential innovation fellow? Let's start there. Yeah. So effectively what you're, what you're doing is you're brought in uh, to sit next to you or work with uh, a chief technology officer of a, a different sort of uh, organization within government. So, you know, people were staffed at the Department of Veteran Affairs, people were staffed at Health and Human Services, at Department of State, uh, you know, at a number of different uh, federal agencies around Washington, and usually in sort of two or three person SWAT teams where you'd be sort of right there with the CTO working on some of the biggest problems they had with, with technology in that organization. Um, mine, because my background was less, was less product and engineering centric, was more conceptual and sort of uh, reframing uh, debates and conversations within Washington around federal grant making. Uh, so I actually worked in the Office of Social Innovation um, on the Domestic Pol Policy Council in the White House. And the, the conversation was more about um, taking the president's management agenda, which uh, dealt with saving money and trying to get uh, different federal grant programs to think about staged investing or staged grant making, a lot like venture capital. So, you know, VCs don't go and write massive checks on day one. They generally do a seed check, which is fairly small when there's high risk. And then as the risk gets uh, less and less, they're able to deploy larger and larger checks because they're more confident in that company or product working. And similarly, it was trying to take that ethos from Silicon Valley, from, you know, staged investing like in venture or private equity um, and bringing that same sort of rigor and, and lens to how federal grants um, were, were doled out. So that was my you know, particular project, but really it was, uh, for, for those interested, it's a really fascinating uh, you know, role and position to get to spend uh, six to 12 months in government, meeting a lot of interesting people, and you know, hopefully also having some impact and trying to help move things forward in a, in a more productive way. Yeah, you know, so I have a question about this. Um, you know, a couple of themes we like to talk about a lot on the show is you know, how people become high perform high performers but also how to help our organizations become high performance organizations you know changing other humans is something that you know literature and history is full of people doing poorly right um so i'm interested you know with your background um thinking about a role like that where 
there's obviously some deep ruts doing it the old way. What kind of advice would you have for anyone who's trying to, you know, they've recognized a pattern of, of a high, you know, of a higher effectiveness way to get something done, but you've got institutional ruts the old direction. Thinking about that innovatively and, and wanting to, you know, have the most effective change, but also, you know, probably the quickest change. What kind of advice would you have for someone in a situation like that where you were giving them that kind of advice? Yeah, it's 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 a tough, you know, it's a tough question. I, I found, you know, my own personal experience, having patience is probably first and foremost, uh, you're not going to change the world overnight, uh, especially in, you know, large organizations, uh, large bureaucracies. But I do think that, um, you know, you, you have sort of uh, internal internal buy-in. So I think finding people that may be part of the, the old guard, uh, you know, and, and sort of communicating to them how to make their life easier uh, and sort of winning, winning over a few insiders on the sort of old guard, it, it can help be evangelist for the cause of, you know, bringing more um, productivity or, or, or new ways of doing things into an organization. But I think it, um, it has to come with humility. It has to come with, you know, conversations and really understanding what that, that person uh, does and, you know, what, what, what problems they ultimately face. So you can kind of speak their language, but I think that goes to, you know, how do you launch a great product? How do you sort of find any product market fit? You generally have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to go talk to customers. You got to get out of the building. And I think similarly, um, you know, in these organizations, you probably got to get into the building. You got to go talk to the actual people that are um, kind of the old school, uh, like like doing it the old way, and you know, really understand why and what their sort of impediments to change are, um, to be able to speak their language, and then hopefully, you know, bring about some some new ideas, but with a lot of humility and grace, and not sort of um, shouting from the rooftops. You know, you're you're here. From Silicon Valley or, or wherever it might be, you know, to save the day, I think that that doesn't go over very well. Well, you know, and, and again, we have a lot, a number of of large government clients. Um, you know, I think getting out of the getting out of the building is apt because it's getting out of the management building and going to the building where those frontline workers are, um, which is not, you know, always built into these people's routines, um, just habits and the way things have been done for a few decades. You know, management stays with management and the the frontline staff are out there, you know, dealing with the citizens or, you know, this, these kind of things. Um, so thinking about this patience and this, um, you know, it sounds like appreciation for different people's thoughts, which obviously relates uh, very directly to your book. If someone wants to have that kind of influence, though, um, in your opinion, besides being patient, what, what do you feel like is a key to helping them come to the conclusion that this is not just manipulative, that you actually do have their best interests at heart? Or um, what recommendation do you have about, you know, letting them participate in what this should look like to roll out? Or how, how do you, what's the difference between checking the box of, I went and met with some frontline staff, uh, I'm sure I've got evangelists, versus actually, uh, you know, really winning over um, somebody like that to, to, to truly being an evangelist? Yeah, I think I think it comes down to authenticity in how you uh, deliver the message, and I think you know that's kind of the the point of of my book as well. Is you know even if you want to participate in the digital revolution, you know in in the tech economy, 
Um, you don't have to, you know, run and, and become a mediocre coder in order to do that. I think if you own up with authenticity to what it is you're good at and what you love to do, there's a role for you in every company and every startup um, and potentially, you know, to even start your own thing. <clears throat> and I think that similarly, you know, it's sort of taking the lens of, okay, I, I'm, you know, I studied psychology. I love psychology. I'm going to try to get into the minds of these people and understand what it is that's motivating them and driving them. Or, you know, my background is in sociology or organizational behavior. And I want to think through the group dynamics of why are they entrenched in this position, you know, opposing somebody else? Are there sort of internal dynamics that are fiefdoms and, and little, uh, you know, ways that, that there are interactions within the organization, you know, but can you think, can you think through on different levels and, you know, which is the one that speaks most um, authentically to you and what you're good at um, and then try to, you know, put, put the problem in, in those terms. But I think, you know, we talk a lot about um, becoming a T, you know, a T player where you've got sort of breadth and then one thing that you're really deep on or good at, and that's sort of the base of the T. And I think, you know, today with the conversations around STEM, it's that, you know, everyone needs to have this depth of technical expertise, which I think is, is, is wonderful if that's what you're passionate about. But if, if you're not, um, it's great to have the technical expertise on sort of the, the broad uh, breadth of the T, but the depth of the T could actually be that you really uh, love and understand psychology or philosophy or any number of other things that can be very relevant in how you think through problems. I mean, it, it kind of sounds to me a little bit like you're saying, you know, take what you know, take something from your circle of competence, and then, you know, add some authentic curiosity. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think that's that's a great way of putting it. Um, and I, I really like a metaphor that um, I was told by a, a vice provost at a, at a university, and it was a great way, I think, of thinking and, and saying the same thing as, as what you just did, which is thinking about your education and sort of keeping yourself in beta keeping yourself a work in progress, um, but thinking about it in terms of not just a plane ticket where you're going, you're studying one thing and you're going from point A to point B, but think about your yourself as a passport where you're trying to collect stamps from various different worlds and, and different backgrounds and different ideas. And, you know, the same, the same time that you may have spent a lot of time in Europe, you know, but you've never been to Asia, you want to unlock that piece. You want to really understand uh, you know, what it is that differentiates those two places. And similarly, you know, if you've spent a lot of time studying English literature, um, that's great, but you should also maybe you know, challenge yourself to take a statistics course or data science class that, that really scares you because, you know, maybe you're not as good at that. Um, and I think if we can all sort of think about ourselves as, uh, you know, our educations as passports and we're trying to collect stamps from as many worlds as we can, we're going to have this sort of broad curiosity and we're going to have the things that we're also you know deeply competent in and i think we you know we can own those authentically and and know that there's there's a role uh to play in all these companies and it, you know you don't have to look very far in silicon valley to find amazing people with all sorts of backgrounds um, you know you look at youtube is run by uh susan wojcicki who studied history and literature you know pinterest was founded by ben silberman who was a political science major um you know, AOL was founded by Steve Case, who studied history at, at Middlebury or at Williams, excuse me. Um, you know, there's there are a number of examples of people who sort of with authenticity and passion for whatever it was that they studied um, have figured out a way to sort of use those methodologies to be really, you know, um, effective and dangerous, even in the tech world. I love it. I think it's a great place to end part one of the episode. Uh, besides 
you know, audible.com or amazon.com to be buying their own copies of uh, The Fuzzy and the Techie here by Scott Hartley. Where else is a good place for them to connect with you or, or um, reach out? Yeah, so my website is just fuzzytechie.com. Um, and I've got, you know, Twitter and, and Instagram and, and all those places as well. Um, Fuzzy Techie is sort of the, uh, the handle for most of those. And, uh, you know, you can buy the book pretty much anywhere books are sold. And um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for your interest. That's great. Well, tune in to their next episode, folks. We're going to talk more about the venture capital world and running marathons and all sorts of things with Scott. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you'll remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he uh, he started a new company called BlipBillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.